and welcome to The Activator, a podcast dedicated to helping you develop confidence and strategies to share your faith. My name is Josh Duell, and on the show today, I'm very excited to have Doug Shop. Doug is the National Director of Evangelism for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He's authored some extremely practical books on evangelism. And in part one of our conversation today, we're going to talk about something that comes up a lot in Doug's writings, the five thresholds of postmodern conversion. We're going to talk about what these five thresholds are and how knowledge of them can make us more effective evangelists. We're also going to talk about whether living a moral life and waiting for people to ask us about our faith is an effective evangelistic approach. Later on in the conversation, we'll talk about some questions we can ask to engage in evangelistic conversations, and then how we can tell when someone's getting curious about Christianity and what we can do to help them cross the final threshold into faith in Jesus. It's a great episode today. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you enjoy the show. Doug, good to have you on the podcast. You're the National Director of Evangelism for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, which for those who don't know, it's an interdenominational evangelical Christian campus ministry, works with students and faculty on a wide variety of U.S. and Canadian college and university campuses. Uh, that sounds like a fantastic job. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to faith? And Yeah, it's my dream job, but uh, way back, grew up being forced to go to church, not by gunpoint, just forced to go, and my impression as I looked around the church is that everybody was bored, and because they were bored, I assumed God was boring, uh, so I decided to go find my son somewhere else because that's not in God, and then I got to the university campus, and I bumped into some of these crazy university people who loved me generously, they let me just find my own way toward Jesus, and they opened the scripture with me, and it totally changed my life by the end of my freshman year, and I fell in love, it's actually kind of funny, because I fell in love with Jesus first, I loved who he is, who he, in the Gospels, I loved how he opposes religious hypocrisy, I'm like, yeah, those <laughs> hypocrites, Jesus, yeah. and then Jesus said to me, well, guess what, you're also one of them, so you also need to repent, and I didn't uh, see that coming, so that was the end of my first year in college and became a leader with InterVarsity, loved it, fell in love with my wife by co-leading a small group. At that time, she was just my friend. So we've been married together for 28 years, three kids, and uh, led ministries in California for a while with InterVarsity, and then have been doing national work, uh, particularly national director of aviation for the last year. Oh, wow. Well, you spent... 30 years then uh, of, of your life ministering and, and now even training others to minister uh, on university campuses, which is a really unique context to share the gospel. Uh, North American campuses are wonderfully diver- uh, diverse, um, full of people from a variety of different cultures and faith backgrounds. And, you know, for those who've tried to engage this context, uh, they know kind of those old forms of evangelism, um, which assumed this baseline belief in, in Christianity or God, um, it can be hard to gain traction with. The, kind of the old tracks, the canned presentations, those guilt-heavy approaches, they're not really working in 
perhaps the same way as they were. Now, you you have many great articles and material, and uh, people can go online and find all sorts of great stuff from you. What I appreciate, uh, a few of the books you've uh, co-authored, I'm thinking of I Once Was Lost, Breaking the Huddle, which is fantastic. It was Outreach, uh, Outreach Magazine's Resource of the Year. Um, both of these books, though, they center around how to present the gospel to people in the middle of this post-modern, post-Christian context. And they're both built around the idea of the five thresholds of post-modern conversion. Can you explain that, what that is um, to the listener who doesn't know, and really how you came across the concept of the five thresholds? Absolutely. So in the 80s, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I loved C.S. Lewis. And I thought the smartest way to engage non-Christians would be to read mere Christianity. Yeah, mere Christianity, yeah. And then, because of the awesome apologetics, they would bend the knee at the impressiveness of C.S. Lewis's arguments. Yeah. And in the 90s, non-Christians just were no longer interested in my little book discussions and my arguments. And I ran up against this wall, and I was like, what the heck? There are supposed to be all these seekers. Because in the 90s, it was seeker-friendly and seeker-creative and seeker-oriented. And at UCLA, I just was like, you know what? There's hardly any seekers here. And so that made me ask the question, what if there's a more complicated process toward faith? And instead of it being seeker-follower, what if there's actually more steps Hmm. to the process? So we decided to pray and discuss, and we went back and interviewed some of the non-Christians who had become followers of Jesus, and we were like, wait a second, there seem to be five distinct phases that people go through, and each one is its own journey. And mm-hmm. sure enough, we decided that that's very accurate to who they are, so we decided to call it the five thresholds of conversion, and we tried to see if it could become six thresholds, or four thresholds, or... We messed with it for about a decade, and finally, about a decade later, in 2008, we were like, this is good enough for a book. So we wrote, I once was lost, based on these five little mountains that you have to climb over with non-Christians to move towards faith. And like you said a second ago, it's very different from some of the old notions, like like uh, witness is binary. I either share the whole gospel, or I have not shared the gospel. Hmm. And instead, what we're saying is, let's be a friend. Let's love people where they are and help them take steps toward Jesus. And when we're a friend, it's about love instead of sales. Because in the old way, I have to sell you something that you don't want to buy. And that's a terrible experience. Mm-hmm. Talking about Jesus, if I have to sell you something. Mm-hmm. And now, instead of it being about sales or instead of it being binary, we're asking, where are they at? What are they interested in? Let's come alongside them. And let's be a good friend and help them grow toward Jesus. And that has been a game changer for us in university and wherever we teach on this, in church and church plants, everywhere, because we're paying more attention to non-Christians. We're figuring out what they're interested in. We're asking them better questions. And we're seeing Hmm. It's fascinating. I know um, when I came across your writing on this, it really really helped to make sense of things for me as well. And actually, um, just to testify to kind of the effectiveness of this, literally just this last week, I was having a conversation with somebody and I'm, I'm, I'm running it through the thresholds. Where are they at? Kind of what line in the sand have they come to? And I actually, like, I, I kind of thought, hey, I'm, I'd imagine they're probably like two 
there's these five thresholds that people have pointed out in their in their um, walk and kind of coming to Jesus that people tend to cross. And I walked through them and the person, when I got to the third said, yeah, I think I'm right there right now. And, and I found it fascinating how you can engage. And then I went to the fourth and they said, do you know what? I actually think I'm across that fourth. And, I, and, and then I said, well, so then the final one being, you know, like coming to actually coming to believe and, and put your faith in Christ. He said, how do I cross that threshold? And, and I actually got to lead someone to the Lord right there in that moment. And I thought it was such a fantastic lead up and talk about the providence of meeting your wife in a small group. Um, I'm like, I'm interviewing Doug Shop this week and I got to use the five thresholds to lead someone to the Lord. So for those who aren't familiar with it though, um, Doug, I'd love it if we could take a minute and maybe walk through the five thresholds so listeners can really... Absolutely. So as someone comes to faith in Christ from a complete secular or alternate faith background, they're going to have to cross several of these five thresholds. Could we maybe begin at the first and just explain to us what that is? You betcha. So in the coast, west coast and east coast of the United States, we definitely start from a place of distrust. A uh, hundred years ago, my grandfather was a boy in rural America and the most trusted institution in his town was the Presbyterian Church and the head pastor. The head pastor was more admired than the mayor. He was more admired than the police chief. He was more he was the most admired person in town. And my grandfather wanted to join the Presbyterian Church. That was his young life ambition. Life ambition. Today oh, wow. it's completely different. And yeah, not the case anymore. <laughs> In a recent survey of like respected careers, one being the best, 50 being the worst, evangelist was number 49. Number 50 was prostitute. So that's <laughs> me. I am number 49. Oh, wow. At least trusted profession. And 100 years ago, it would have been the opposite. Oh, wow. So today, we don't start from a context of trust. We start from a context of distrust, much of which we deserve. Scandal in the church, hypocrisy irrelevance, isolation. So then instead of being offended that people have distrust toward me when they find out that I'm a Christian, I want to become a trust builder. And I want to be a good conversationalist. I want to listen. I want to ask them questions. And I want to do stuff with them. And that's a trust builder. So they move in the first threshold from distrust to trust. So by the end of the first threshold, now you like me. Mm. Now we can be buds. The second threshold begins with indifference. What that means is, I might totally like you, and I don't give a rip about your faith. So trust and curiosity are actually different parts of the process. So the second threshold, they start out as indifference, and then through God's power, through me asking them good questions about themselves, about life, about what they think about big topics, then they become curious. Um, I'm thinking of the guys I've worked with um, in the past, um, pre-ministry, kind of getting interested and and knowing I'm a believer and there's that standoffishness, but then eventually they're kind of like, well, this guy's actually all right. And, and, and that's that first threshold from distrust to... How, how do we engage in that better? How, how could we um, really tell somebody's at that point? And what really, what does effective engagement look like? Yeah, both of those. 
trust builder, number one, just don't be offended that they distrust you. Don't say, well, I'm a good Christian. You should trust me. Um, uh, for whatever reason, they don't, and that's fine. So let's mm. actually work to build trust, and then be a friend. Hang out. Do what they do. Enjoy them. And then over time, so for example, I'm a soccer coach for my kids for the last 14 years. Mm. And... Uh, I have a lot of fun. I'm a pretty good coach. And by the end of the season, I've totally bonded with these kids and with their parents. And they really want to be on my team again. They trust me. Almost never do they ask me about my faith. Like, never in 14 years. And the old myth is, well, if I'm a person of integrity and I'm a person of faith and I just kind of let them know that I'm a Christian, they will ask me questions when they're ready. Baloney never happens these days. Hardly ever happens. Yeah. And instead, there is different because in a postmodern context, I have an atheist friend. I have a Marxist friend. I have a lesbian friend. I have a Christian friend. They're all wonderful, and they're all random. Random data points in my view of the random world that we live in. And so the fact that I trust you doesn't mean that your faith or your belief system has anything to do with me at all, and so I'm indifferent. And so we have to realize it's good that we're trust builders, but then let's actually stoke curiosity on purpose. The good thing is, Jesus is the best at this. Jesus, yeah. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't have Q&A sessions. Jesus has Q&Q sessions. So you ask Jesus a question, he answers it with a question all over the place. Hmm. There's something like 400 questions that Jesus asks others in the Gospels. Ironically, in the church, we're preoccupied with the right answers. So we give people good theology and right answers, and we think that's satisfying. But our Lord Jesus is great at questions because he wants to provoke the complacent to fit for themselves. He wants to open minds, not close them. So why don't we learn to be like Jesus and just ask some great questions? And that's one of the best ways to move people from indifferent to curious is ask him a couple questions. What's your background with faith? Hmm. Is that relevant for you today? Just, what's your, what's your story? That's one of my friend's favorite thing that he says. So whether he's known you for five minutes or four or five days, what's your story? Hmm. And then the person talks for 10 to 20 minutes about their story, and guess what happens next? Then they say back to him, well, what's your story? Yeah. And part of his story is how he in love with Jesus, and that's just a normal part of his conversation. So what, you, what we want to do is we want to help people find the right kinds of questions that just fit your person. Like, so when you're training campus, what sort of questions do you encourage them to use? If somebody's coming into this going, I, I don't know what question I would ask, what kind of questions could we ask to stoke curiosity at this second threshold? So we've earned some trust, but now we're taking someone from indifference into curiosity. We begin by being curious. Yeah, I got a free video series about this. But, uh, what we like to do is we like to have a pairing, two questions, because conversations go better when you have a back-to-back -back question. So if I'm meeting you for the first time, I'll say, do you have any faith background or have you ever been to church? You usually give me a yes, no, maybe kind of an answer. It might be a little awkward, but usually it's fine. And then I say, does faith have any meaning for you today? That's a pretty simple pairing of questions. Um, sometimes I like to be a little more relevant to today. And so I say, I say something like, what do you think God thinks about Black Lives Matter? Hmm. 
because that's a big deal in space right now. Yep. And the person that I'm talking to has never thought about God and Black Lives Matter. So they're like, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe good. And I'm like, well, what if that was like really important to God? What would you think? And then we're like, we're, we're kind of having a conversation about it. Or if it's not based on that, then we're uh, chasing some other topic. And what do you think the meaning of life is? If I want to have more mm -hmm. philosophical orientation toward it, or um, what's the best part of your life right now? That's kind of an intriguing question. And then they'll ask you back, and I'll be like, believe it or not, Jesus is hooking me up. And they're like, hooking you up? What are we talking about? And now we're off. I love that. I love that approach. I often um, use the same thing, just kind of start a conversation, um, keep tossing the talking stick back. And it's funny how it, it turns. If you if you act interested in somebody and model good listening, um, they often just turn that right back around and will ask you the same set of questions and what an opportunity. Um, so the second threshold is from indifference to curiosity, but the third is from being closed to change to open to change. Um, that seems like a bigger gap there. Can you unpack that one a little bit for us and explain how somebody would kind of come from two to three? Yeah. So you like me, you don't trust, and then at some point you say, well, Doug, do dogs go to heaven? Which is a interesting question. You're not a seeker. This is one of the mistakes I made in the mid-90s is I would think that if you asked me a question, you were a seeker. Not true. You're really curious second threshold. So then the key part to the third threshold is one of the biggest mysteries of the five thresholds, which is we can talk banter about life. We can banter about faith. But if you're not interested in the ramifications personally, you're not opening your heart. So what happens in the third threshold is we go from abstract to personal to what's happening in my life right now. And that is such a key turning point because now we've gone from um, abstraction to the heart. And what's happening in the heart is I'm actually interested in doing something about this conversation. Even though I don't know that it's related to Jesus, I still want to deal with my anger problem. I still want to talk about my anxiety. I'm ready to look for the first time at my racism. I'm willing to lift the lid on some junk in my life and now we've moved from close to change to open to change it doesn't mean they're a speaker but it means that the whole dynamic of our friendship has changed because we're dealing with real issues and in this one the best thing for the follower of jesus to do in my opinion mm -hmm. is be honest yourself that's good one that's helpful that we will do one thing we'll do regularly in fact what i'm doing right now during COVID is I'll say pick five areas where the world is hurting. Right now it's anxiety, loneliness, depression, in and then in listening prayer, I say to people, pick one. Which one do you relate to? So I, Doug, relate to anger. I'm finding myself surprisingly angry over little things because of the impact of isolation. So I'm like, Lord, speak to me about this anger and then what I'll do is I'll pivot in a conversation and I'll say hey let's have some fun online or let's do some interactive hobby online and then I'll say now let's get real and I'll start let's start with me Doug 
I have been surprisingly angry. And this may sound funny, but I've actually been asking God into that part of my life and asking him to change me. And it's been powerful. And God actually met me yesterday because I asked him to deal with my anger. And what's happening in that story is it goes from religion to, oh, blah, blah, Sunday school answers to, what? You prayed yesterday and God did something for you yesterday? Oh, my goodness. You have something real. In the postmodern context, that's really what people are craving is something real. And so we need, as followers of Jesus, to open real stories about real interactions with God that we're having today, not last year and not when I was two years old. Oh, that's really helpful. That's how people move from closed to open. So a lot of the evangelistic conversations I have, they seem to happen right around the, the two to three um, like the bulk majority of them, um, you, you laid out a couple things we can do really well and, and effective ways to engage, which is be authentic, um, talk about what this actually means in our lives. So this isn't some detached principle. This is something that's making a difference in our lives. Uh, I, I love that. What about though, what are some of the dangers of engaging in, in these stages? What are some like kind of no-nos, re- like avoid this if you can? Is there any kind of warnings you could provide for us? One of the things that happens is just it's slow process sometimes. And sometimes, like at the woman at the well, John 4, mm-hmm. I think she moves through all five thresholds in one chapter, in one encounter with Jesus. It's not good Jesus. He's pretty good at evangelism. <laughs> so that moves pretty quick. Meanwhile, sometimes people will be stuck in the third threshold for a year, and people will give up. Or... Uh, they want to be nice, and because they want to be nice, there's no speaking the truth in love. And one of the things that we need to grow in is how to speak the truth in love in an appropriate way, because our friends are settling. Our friends are settling for Starbucks to solve all their life problems, and Starbucks doesn't do a very good job solving all of life's problems. Just early morning. Yeah, there you go. But they're addicted to this and that kind of a thing, and it's like, what we do is we want to say, God, help me see what this person would look like if they were set free from this addiction or this area that they're stuck in. Show me what they would look like if they were full of your love and joy. And so we need to have a holy imagination about who they could become if they were full of the Holy Spirit and full of God's power and love instead of what they're settling for. And we're not being judgmental in saying, God, show me where they're stuck. We're just being realistic about how God can make a game-changing difference in their life. So where we settle or we get into arguments. So we don't want to get into arguments, and we also don't want to just give up. And we want to stay engaged. And it's hard to stay engaged when people are stuck for a long period of time. So I would say those are some of the things we want to avoid is becoming impatient and argumentative or becoming impatient and just detaching because we're like, whatever, they'll never change. And we'll want to avoid both those extremes. Well, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we can fall victim to the idea that this needs to happen in a single conversation. You know, we got to get somebody from where they're at, just feed them the facts and get them to um, belief in in the course of an afternoon. And I, I love what I love about the thresholds is it, it kind of helps you to see where people are at. And, and your books do a fantastic job of really flushing out 
how we effectively engage at each of these stages. So somebody somebody goes from being closed to change to open to change, and then the the fourth line in the sand, the fourth flat, uh, threshold that they would cross is from meandering to seeking. And in Breaking the Huddle, um, you write, someone who's crossed this threshold is on a quest to come to a conclusion about Jesus. This active seeking, this quest season is actually quite exhausting to be in. And we've heard numerous stories of people who've regressed backwards in their journey if they weren't able to come to some solid conclusions. This is part of why recognizing when someone is at this threshold is so important. And so out of that quote, I just want to ask, how can we recognize when someone has moved from not just being open to change, but they're starting to seek? Yeah, this is fascinating. And one of the things that's fascinating is you start to you start to look, now you're open. So you look at Buddha, you look at Krishna, you look at yoga, and you look at crystals, and you look at Jesus. So you're kind of looking at five different options. And repeatedly, when people tell these stories about their friends, they get mad at them. They get mad because they're like, can you believe it? They're looking in five different places for answers. I'm so bothered. They must be curious. They must be at the second threshold. And I say, are you kidding me? They're voting with their feet. Mm. They are looking. They are looking for answers. They are looking for stuff. So that one of the things you want to ask is, are they putting effort into their quest? But they're putting effort into their quest. They're voting with their feet. They are looking for something. I love this part. But no one has ever taught them to seek Jesus. There's, there is no obvious, like, oh, here's how to seek guidebook. Because there's no here how to seek guidebook. That's what the followers of Jesus get to do. We come alongside. We say, if you could ask Jesus one question to help you decide if he is trustworthy with your life, What's really important to you to figure out with Jesus? Hmm. And one time I had a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, tell me, I have 25 questions. And she did. She pulled out a piece of paper. She had 25 questions for Jesus. <laughs> There's your A-type. I paused and I said, which is the one question that if you got an answer to that, it'd be a game changer in deciding to follow Jesus. And she said, oh, she said, are you trustworthy? Ding, 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 ding. That's a funny question. And I said, that needs to become your prayer. You, she asked, she said, I'll pray. I said, great, I do. Let me teach you how. So we went into a private, we were in a convention center. So we went out into the lobby. And I just said, could you pray that prayer? Just say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to know if you're trustworthy with my life. So I helped her pray that one prayer. Two days later, she texted me, and she's like, I became a follower of Jesus. He answered my prayer. Oh, wow. So I was focusing her quest on what would be most important, and then she was becoming a seeker. Because now she could focus worship on that question, focus her Bible study on that question, look at some good apologetics questions with that in mind. That's what we want to do for people who are voting with their feet, checking out options, help them figure out, do you want to pray with me? Do you want to study scripture? Do you want to read an apologetics book? Do you want to listen to a podcast? 
Yeah. Now let's do it together. Let's do it together. And instead of just letting them seek on their own, let's seek with them. Be part of that exciting, nerve-wracking, invigorating process. Well, that's really helpful. Um, engaging with and really showing people what it looks like to effectively seek and to um, fruitfully seek after Christ. Um, that quote I, I quoted a minute ago, you said um, that it's important we know how to engage and, and recognize someone at this point, but you also said that it's an exhausting season for the people going through it. Can you explain that a little? Well, yeah, if I'm spending time on Buddha, Krishna, yoga, crystals, and Jesus, oh my gosh, I'm chasing five different squirrels all at the same time, and we found that a good seeker tends to seek for about three months. There's just a genuine interest, and they're, they're looking, and they are a learner. And in anything, learning takes time and energy, and to intentionally learn, we're like, okay, I seriously have to look into this thing. And then everybody plateaus, and like, okay, that was, whew, okay, good, I checked out some stuff. Now back to my regular life. Hmm. Uh, and um, I just had don't have very many experiences of people being willing to seek for a long period of time. Um, they may meander and look around, but it's pretty helpful to focus the quest and then at some point just say, I think you've seen a lot about Jesus. What would it take for you to make a decision? Because he's the best thing ever and I think that he has shown himself to be trustworthy. Let's take the job together. I like that. I like that. A question um, that I'll often ask people at this point is, um, what would keep you from following Jesus or deciding to make Jesus Lord of your life, mm-hmm. which kind of identifies everything um, that might still be standing in the way um, in their threshold number four stage, in their meandering and seeking? Or I've often had people say nothing, nothing. And, and that kind of leads us into threshold number five. Uh, another quote from your book, you said, non-Christians don't necessarily know how to cross this threshold from lost to saved, which underscores how important it is that they have Christian friends helping them as they journey along. I, I, I've really come to believe this is true. I think that there's people showing up at churches on Sunday mornings and they want to come to faith and they're not hearing how. Because often as Christians, we assume people know what they need to do to do this. And um, I don't know that we're actually making it that clear. So I'm curious, how can you tell when someone's come to this point? And then how do you train Christians to help people cross? Yeah. Uh, scripture says you do not have because you do not ask. And... We like to apply that to evangelism, and we just say, let's be good askers. Let's be good inviters. And inviters toward Jesus, and then, hey, at some point, you get to decide who's at the center of the story. And you will be at the center of the story, or God will be at the center of the story. And we think that the smartest thing to do is put God at the center of your story. So at some point, I'd like to help you consider that. And actually, it would be awesome if you decide to make God at the center. So what do you think about that? And I'm just kind of warming up to where are you at with this question and making it normal instead of like, well, let me lay out all the tenets of the gospel and like all this stuff. And more just like everyone has to make this decision. 
I think it's the best decision ever. Where are you at with thinking about trusting God with the center of your life right there? And so we teach staff and students to have conversations like this in a regular part of Bible study, as a regular part of small groups, as the regular part of church services. And we also invite response to all kinds of challenges from Scripture, all kinds of ways that Jesus hear and respond, right? We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. And so as I train speakers, I say, why don't we always be, this is going to be kind of funny, but I say, why don't we always be an equal opportunity butt kicker? And why don't we start with the followers of Jesus first and give a good challenge from the passage for application and then say, you may have never committed your life to Jesus. And you can have that exact same opportunity tonight to put God at the center. And I would be remiss not to invite you to consider a life-changing moment right now. And it's not the kind of weird, now, who here? And then, like, long, awkward silence. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like, I'm going to lead you to think about this. And it's not actually even me inviting you. It's God inviting you. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit at work already. Right yeah, if you're sitting here right now, and this sort of desire is rising in you, that's God inviting you to come home to your Father in heaven. And if that's something that you'd be interested in, I'm going to ask you to do something about it right now. And we're going to invite response, just like we did a second ago to other people in the area of forgiving a family member who hurts you, because we already worked on that one. So yeah. That's, you know, cultures of invitation, cultures of response is what we're trying to build into our churches. Well, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to listen again. And... Well, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to listen in again next week for part two of my conversation with Doug. Trust me, in the second half, Doug drops some solid gold bars of evangelistic wisdom, and you'll hear some amazing tips that will help superpower your evangelistic effectiveness. If you enjoyed the show, hit subscribe. That way you won't miss anything. And if you enjoyed what you heard, share it with someone you think would enjoy it as well. And take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people find the show, and we'd appreciate that a lot. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again next time.